And let's uh, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Just the opportunity to look at your word and look at King David, and we ask that you would, some of these real difficult times in David's life, we would uh, ask that we would understand. In your son's name, amen. Well, <clears throat> this sort of middle section, which doesn't really occur in Chronicles, just in 2 Samuel, <clears throat> uh, is the, uh, you know, the, essentially the collapse of David's monarchy. And the reason it's collapsing is, comes out of last week's lesson on 2 Samuel 12, where Nathan the prophet had said to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Part of the curse for having sinned with Bathsheba, not only the life of the child, but uh, this in general, and then that his wives would be slept with in the sight of Israel. And <clears throat> just like with the death of the child, even though David's confession had been accepted, the price of folly is um, and sin has its own, you might say, at least its own energy. Um, that it brings into being circumstances and attitudes and um, that, that unless God is going to override everybody's free will, it's going to spring up. Some of these things God may have brought to pass, but you'll see the very natural growth. This is the story of Absalom and how David's son um, rebelled against his father. And it, bring, it begins it very naturally. You get to watch the development of Absalom uh, as a person. And the first story in Second uh, Samuel 13, um, and Absalom's life goes all the way through to um, uh, the end of 19. And uh, close to the end of 19. And... Um, Absalom steps forward as kind of a, a good guy, sort of a good guy, and that's how the collapse begins to happen. There's a, a number of the children of David by various wives uh, know each other. Absalom, we're not sure whether this is his natural sister or because it refers to this girl Tamar as his sister, whether they're the same mom. Uh, when it lists her in the names of David's kids, it doesn't say who her mother is. There's a suggestion that the attention and care that Absalom shows to her is because she's full sister and the brother that is the villain is a half-brother by another, by another mother. And she's beautiful. And one of the other brothers, Amnon, it says, in love with her so much, verse 2, he was tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Which already bespeaks a certain degree of crassness on his motivations. He gets advice uh, from Jonadab, um, Jonadab, excuse me, and uh, um, who finds out he loves his sister Tamar, and he says, pretend to be ill and have her come and wait on you, uh, attend you in your sickness. She does so. 
he asks her to come into his bedroom and serve him dinner, ask everybody else to leave. He grabs her, she objects, and warns him that this is folly, This he could have her legitimately if he just asked their father. Um, but he knew what he wanted. He wanted to do something to her. And verse 14, he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. And this is one of the amazing verses in the scriptures. It tells us so much about the nature of man. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. So he drives her out, locks the door behind her, literally lets you know that he locks the door behind her. She, being a virgin, has been defiled. She rends her garments. She um, is desolated. Uh, goes and, and her brother Absalom runs into her and um, um, is uh, um, he comforts her, takes her into his house, and she lives with him, a desolated woman. <clears throat> Virginity playing very largely in ancient societies because people were, not because they were, um, you might say, morally, sexually um, repressed, because obviously they, they didn't seem to be in any of their activities, but that they were very conscious of inheritance and dynasties and, and families. It was, it was that that was preserving and, and women wanted their virginity as a mark, not just of maybe morality, but a mark of, a mark of um, I am providing you an unspoiled woman who you can necessarily know but had not played the harlot in Israel. <clears throat> but again, not because of the sexual nature of it, but because of the uh, breeding nature of it. Well. Absalom shows very early that, that he is a man who knew the timing. He knew how to, he knew what he wanted to do, and he knew how to wait to do it. He waits two years, does nothing. David is angry about Amnon raping Tamar. Absalom is angry, but Amnon, uh, Absalom does nothing. And two years later, he has a party and invites his brother Amnon to it, and he has set him up to be assassinated, and so they had a certain word from Absalom, his sidekicks jump up and kill Amnon for raping Tamar. And verse 34, but Absalom fled. David is just shocked when his son, Absalom, seems to be a favorite. Amnon he was already angry with. Now Absalom is on the run. He runs off and, and stays with another king. And it lets us know in verse um, 39 that the spirit of the king longed to go forth to Absalom, for he was comforted about Amnon, seeing he was dead. We don't know what the comfort was, whether he was just had sorrowed and was over it now, but Absalom's still alive and gone, or whether he kind of knew Amnon deserved it and, and it, would, it, it played out. That was sort of the blood avenging had, had taken place. But Absalom was gone three years. He waited two years to kill his brother. And then he is on the run or uh, in exile for three years. 
And we know that David's heart is pro-Absalom. And Joab steps in here in the first verse of 14 and perceived that the king's heart went out to Absalom. So Joab, always a king's man, he's always the king's man, he said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll work this out. He creates a situation that's very reminiscent of Nathan. When Nathan came to David over Bathsheba, he tells him that story about the, the sheep and the guy who lost his one dear sheep. Joab sets this up the same way. He has a wise woman pretend to mourn in front of David and give him a sob story about her sons. One killed the other, and now the people wanted to kill the living son for murder, but that would have wiped out her line. She would have had no descendants if they were allowed to kill. So it was designed to be like the Nathan response. David does respond to the story, expresses himself, and... Um, she brings it back on him in verse 13. Why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his brandished one home again. We must all die. We are, we are like water split, spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away the life of him who devises means not to keep his banished one an outcast. It's a bit of a belabored point. It doesn't even actually fit the story she told him that much. But she springs it on David. David go, looks at her probably with narrowed eyes and says, you've been talking to Joab. She, he knows. I mean, he's, and she admits it right out. Says, okay, yeah, you, King sees right through it. Joab told me everything to say. And, but this has moved David in this direction. Now, this is a problem. Um... David, either because David doesn't seem to have it, he has sort of a, a free-floating sense of grace. Again, we've commented before about grace to his enemies an awful lot, and, um, and this is part and parcel of that. Um, he doesn't punish people um, accurately. Uh, it doesn't hold them accountable. He needed to have done something about Amnon, but didn't. He had raped his sister, destroyed her life, didn't do anything. Absalom has that in his craw, not just about Amnon, but about father. There's father issues here. And he starts to give in. The, the fact that he is leverageable out of his affection for Absalom creates problem after problem after problem in this situation. Um, he grants, okay, Absalom can come back to Jerusalem, but I won't see it. Now, two years he waited to kill Amnon. Three years he was off with this other king in another place. He's back in Jerusalem. He ends up spending two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king. But he's been busy. Absalom <clears throat> um, is on the path to self-absorption. And, uh, you know, one of the things I've toyed with about the nature of people's temptation to sin, one of the big ones is pride of life. And Absalom had a, uh, uh, a healthy dose of it because the things he 
he, he set himself up in his own mind as the first off, the righteous protector of Tamar, doing that which was right, taking upon himself the king had not done it. He is he has moved in his own mind to a state of the kingship. Now in all Israel, verse 25, there was no one so much to be praised for his beauty as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. I mean, he, and he was really good looking. <laughs> and everybody praised him for it. This made him, you might say, the, the, the point, what well, does come into the story? The fact that he's really good looking doesn't play in the story, but it plays in Absalom, that's for certain. It plays in his head. And for a person who begins to feel, the basic thing about the pride of life is that I wonder, in my, in my control of myself, how much my will can be expanded to include others, that others will look to me. Yeah, we are talking about the nature of Bible study depleted attendance. Well, that plays right on to somebody's sense of self because you know, we have a Bible study, you, you're, you're trying to put your ideas out to other people, and you feel that when you have a big church, you, you feel that positively. When you have a small church, you feel that. Absalom is in a situation where he's being prompted to think about who he is and his will, and he has exercised his will and gotten away with it. He killed his brother and got away with it. Given time, given time, brought back. Two years, praised all the time, and people are looking to Absalom. And finally, he, he wants to see the king. He, he wants to leverage this a little bit further. So he sends to Joab. Joab had helped him out before. Joab, it says, verse 29, Joab would not come to him. He sent a second time, but Joab would not come. And listen to this. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. <laughs> well, suddenly, he's got Joab's attention. They set it on fire. Joab said, hey, what is my field on fire for? He said, I, I asked you to come to me, and you didn't come. I, I don't like being here and not seeing the king. Joab is moved by that. Joab is... You know, you're, you're sort of when a person of, you might say, extremely, what's the line from Zoolander? Um, ridiculously, you're very, 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 very ridiculously good looking. Um, everybody praises this person. This person has gotten off with the various things he has done. Joab greases the skids, and the king allows him to come to him, and they're reunited. But this is not really, you, you don't see any verse uh, 33 there in chapter 14. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. That is pointless, meaningless, because Absalom is about something else. The next verse, in the first verse of 15, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. He has gotten back to the center of things. He has gotten back to the place where he can um, build the Absalom interest 
Before, he was a no-man in Jerusalem, essentially, praised, but he wasn't allowed to see the king. I mean, he, he spent two years not allowed to see the king. And if you can't, um, if you can't um, um, see the king, hey, Rachel, um, uh, <clears throat> if you, um, um, that, that hurts your attempts at anything. He has moved in a very crass way, Joab, to get an audience again. Um, everybody in, the, in their horses are coming through here. Fifty men running before them. Uh, and listen to what he does. You can tell that to enrich his sense of self, Joab used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate, and when any man had a suit to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is from such as such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man deputed by the king to hear you. Absalom said, Moreover, Oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a suit or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to do obeisance to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. That's what he's about. He's expanding his sense of his will. He was realizing from early on as the king grew weaker in regard to a righteous will or dealing with his evil children, what was needed to be done, David's emotional frame was too weak to deal with it. Absalom saw opportunity, and he's been growing himself. And what he does, in order to grow yourself in, you might say, in the will of other people, you've got to lock, you've got to grow your own will over other people. You've got to lock them inside. It's a cult-like practice. Cults do it, even non-cults do it. Corporations do it, uh, products do it. They get a loyalty involved. They convey that you will make gains if you are inside this ring called my will. You will have gains. I will be a judge for you. I will, I will be accessible to you. And when they start to bow the knee to you, instead of allowing that, you lift them up and you kiss them personally. You, you, you welcome them intimately into your set. You bond these people to you. That makes not because Absalom cared that much for Israel. We don't really know what his feelings were about Israel, but we know what he was after, their feelings for him, and that's what he gets. He stole the hearts. Then four years later, at the end of four years, <laughs> this guy is patient. This guy is working it very... And at this point, in the next little section, the next paragraph, Absalom is ready to strike. Nobody suspects a thing, but he has laid everything. He's extended his will. He's extended his reputation. He's been beautiful. He's been helpful. He's been thrifty. He's been kind. He's been about it for years. He goes off to Hebron. Remember, Hebron was the city where David had been king first for seven years. And he sends secret messengers out in verse 10. He takes 200 men with him that don't even know what they're doing. It says they went in their simplicity and knew nothing. But 
he is getting down to Hebron by various means and all of Israel ready to stand with him. He gets David's counselor, Ahithophel, who is, from what we can gather, the top counselor for David's staff, and gets Ahithophel to come down to Hebron with him. And said the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. <clears throat> because when you finally want to make the move, the person who should have the will, the king, should have the will. He should be, the, 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 law, the word of the king should be supreme, as Solomon says. And who may say to him, what are you doing? David had let that go. David had not been suspicious. David had, you might say, loved too freely. And um, uh, in that, um, he was completely surprised, caught flat-footed. Verse 13, a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all of his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape from us, for us from Absalom. Go in haste, let he, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. Hebron's not far away. David, it's, it's, when he finally hears, he knows it's an emergency, but it, suddenly the, the lights come on and David knows they have to run for it. He leaves behind ten of his concubines. We don't know if that's all of his concubines, but ten of his concubines to keep the house. And various people are kept, allowed to go with David, and some are left behind. Um, a, 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 one of his soldiers, a Gittite, uh, um, Ittai, um, nobly goes with David, but he sends Abiathar and the priest and Zadok the priest back with the Ark of the Covenant. They come out to the gate to let people march in front of the Ark, but David says, no, you need to stay here. Uh, but you have two sons that will be useful to us. So Zadok and Abiathar are agents of David in the city, with their two sons, and um, David is going to use as messengers. When he finds out that Ahithophel has gone over to Absalom, he decides to send one of his other advisors, Hushai, um, to stay. He says, why don't you stay and be an advisor to Absalom as well? That way you can counter Ahithophel's advice. Because Ahithophel's so good, if only you can get Absalom not to... Um, not to cover it. And lastly, so it says they're fleeing the city and all these decisions have to be made. Who's staying? Hishai stays, Abiathar stays, Zadok stays, uh, Ittai, the Gittite, comes with, and Ziba, remember Ziba had been the servant of Saul who had let him know about Mephibosheth, rats Mephibosheth out and comes to David with all these supplies and said, Mephibosheth, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm serving you, David, but Mephibosheth is not. He's lying. You know, Mephibosheth really, we'll find out later. So Ziba comes in and, and uh, David gives him all of Mephibosheth's property. He had been only a caretaker before, and uh, he manages to get possession of it. Um, the, uh, it's, it's sort of a dark, a dark story. I mean, we, 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 it's, it's an amazing development of a character in Absalom. He's very interesting. Um, and David's decline is 
foolish old king caught flat-footed by his own son and his own folly about things. And on the way out of town, Shimei, standing on the side of the road, cursing him, kicking dust at him, and throwing rocks. I mean, this guy is just mad at David. And this is where Abishai, I love this line, verse 9, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look upon my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing of me today. If you read the Psalms, you see David's, um, he is familiar with being crushed. You know, he's familiar with being overwhelmed by how bad things are. And he is able, like here, to trust God in it. You know, he comes around in these situations because, you know, but the Lord is good, you know, that, uh, but he, his, his his lack of you might say wisdom or his lack of certain kinds of righteousness have cost him mightily. Some of it's of his own doing. Absalom is of his own doing. He brought this to pass, um, but he understands that even if I'm not guilty, the Lord will look at my. Or if I am guilty, or God wants me cursed. Um, um, this this affliction God may have mercy on me in. And Shimei follows along after him, cursing him all the way. Now, the next section is, uh, I've titled it Hushai versus Ahithophel. And from here down um, to the bottom of the page... No, down through the middle of the page. Basically, we have a couple stories. We have, have a Hushai is accepted. Absalom is a little bit, what are you doing here? You know, he says, well, I've come to whoever's king in Jerusalem I'm going to serve. And he gets his worms his way in. Then it gives us a sample of Ahithophel's counsel. Ahithophel says, Absalom, why don't you sleep with your father's concubines? And don't just sleep with your father's concubines. Do it in front of people. So he sets up a pavilion on top of the palace and sleeps with the concubines in the, as it says, the sight of all Israel. That will make you odious to your father, and everybody will know that this is a this breach will not be mended. Now this is this this makes it you've burned the bridge if you do this. And Absalom does it. Fulfilling what well, you're finding that this is fulfilling two parts of the curse. David's family raises its hand against him in Absalom, and also it had only prophesied that a neighbor would sleep with your wives, and it turns out it's also his, also his son. Um, and it says in 23, Now in those days the counsel which Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. This guy advised you, you took the advice. 
David's on the run. He's just barely made it out of town. Hushai uh, had walked back into the city at the moment that Absalom had entered the city, probably on the other side. Yeah, it, was, it was that nip-tuck sort of situation, you know, David, David escaping. Ahithophel's advice. Those two things were set-ups where Hushai is accepted. Ahithophel gives this first part of advice. Absalom wants to know what Ahithophel thinks about doing, what we do about David. He says, let me choose 12,000 men and I will set out and pursue David tonight. The idea of Ahithophel was a quick, small strike on a disillusioned king. That, that was Ahithophel's thought. And everybody goes, yeah, that's a really good idea. But because of that one thing that David set in motion of sending Hushai back, Absalom says, well, call Hushai the archite also and let us hear what he has to say. So Hushai comes up with a different advice, says, let's gather all Israel together into a big army and pursue David as an army because David is a man of war. He's a great hero. He's got all his valiant men with him and they're ticked. And if you think your reputation could survive losing a battle because you will probably lose it. And in other words, they're defining David differently. Now David is defined accurately by Hithophel. That's really the circumstance. David is disillusioned. David is kind of broken. Um, if you want any notes, look at right there. Grab some. Um, we're on page 19, halfway through, God willing. And you will not recognize any of the names. Ahithophel. You recognize Ahithophel? Um, but we find out later that, that Ahithophel's advice was the, really the good advice. But Hushai is there to turn Absalom from that advice, and he makes a better case. And everybody, it says in verse 14, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord has ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. So there was a, there was a, to undo Absalom, God wanted to not just punish David, but that didn't mean, just like he used the Assyrians to punish Israel, that didn't mean the Assyrians were the good guys, and didn't mean that they wouldn't get punished for what they did. Absalom's going to get punished, and this is, this is the way. What's interesting is Ahithophel, remember, he's got a reputation. Remember, Absalom has a reputation. Absalom is really good looking. And everybody likes him. Everybody's praising him. All Israel is following him. He sets up a conspiracy over years, trips the wire. It works. His father runs out of town. It's a, it's got all, it's got Greek tragedy written on it. It's got like, okay, where's the Achilles heel? Where's this going to fall apart? Ahithophel, it, it lets us know that Ahithophel, Ahithophel, I'm going to say that 12 times quickly. Um, it was as if one consulted the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed. I'd like to have that kind of reputation. I like people coming to me for counsel. But what can you imagine? That'd be like being good looking. You know? Um, everybody, well, everybody talks to Evan. And boy, his counsel, he's always right. He's the oracle. Um, that goes right to your head. There are different kinds 
we're talking about tonight this idea of how people are tempted not merely or Amnon was tempted merely by his loins and rapes his sister. Absalom sets out on a path of establishing his, the reach of his will. Ahithophel has established the reach of his will too. The problem is, when you come to the end of it, listen to this, verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass, went off home to his own city, and he set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Couldn't take the torque. You suddenly realize either the depression over finally being rejected. When you've been in counseling business, when you're in the business of advising, and they find, you finally see your star and the descendant, that could have been it. But it was the idea that my will is not followed. He'd rather be dead. He couldn't take the 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 shame of not it not being followed. Countless people had been outgunned by Ahithophel before in terms of their counsel. But Ahithophel had designed himself this way. He was a good thinker and he had worked this out. But he couldn't take the loss. Absalom is following Hushai's counsel. Now they follow Hushai's counsel, but remember, Abiathar and Zadok and their sons have stayed in Jerusalem. Hushai, as soon as his counsel is accepted, he tells those guys, and the two sons of the priests run off to David and tell him what's going on. So this is all, David still has, some, has inside knowledge of what's going on. So they're able to position themselves to the best possible end. Uh, Absalom and the army of Israel crossed the Jordan into Gilead. Gilead is the whole region on the uh, east side of the river. David's on that side of the river too. He's up the river at Bahanaim, two encampments there, and um, that's where he's holed up. And he's being provided for by some of the locals. Um, and, and Absalom appoints another one of David's relatives, Amasa, as head of the army instead of Joab. Joab with David. He gets a commander of the army named Amasa, who is a grandnephew. Joab is a nephew of David, and Amasa is a grandnephew of David. Through another, another sister. So in chapter 18, there, these two situations are there. Um, And they were going to engage in battle here in the first few verses of chapter 18. And Abishai, Joab, and Ittai, the Gittite, are leading, and they leave David behind. This gives us the information that David kind of lost a bit of himself. You know, he really is, Ahithophel was right. He was a disillusioned king. Um, his son was trying to kill him. Um, so they leave David behind because David was the important thing they were fighting for, and they didn't want to lose him. David then says in verse 5, And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. This is where David keeps falling down, you know. Um, and sometimes people, you think of it as, some people say that's very nice of David. It just blows up in David's face continually 
when he does this. It's the kind of person that that has hasn't figured out the ordinate amount of grace to give people at the right time. Raising kids. When do I spank them? When do I forgive them? When do I give them grace? When do I hold the law and make them pay up? The problem is, you're a king of a nation. You can't be playing around like this. You know, Joab and Abishai, they're, uh, they're bad hombres, and they are ready to uh, do what needs to be done to run a country and the king is falling down on it. It says, it lets us know, and all the people heard when the king give or gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So that the troops heard this restrictive, don't fight this battle too hard. Don't, don't kill Absalom. The battle goes badly for Absalom. They rout the troops of Israel. Uh, 20,000 men die, which when you think about 20,000 dead people in a small amount of space, a lot of them die in the woods. I guess it's a major forest. Absalom's riding through it to try to get away. He gets his head caught. Now, it doesn't say it was his hair. Everybody sort of supposes that because they talk about his hair earlier and how long and heavy it would grow. Gets his head caught in an oak. And he's hanging from his, you know, his head in these branches. Um, and hanging between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. A soldier comes back to Joab and says, hey, I uh, just saw Absalom hanging from a tree. And Absalom's all over him. Uh, Joab's all over him. He said, why didn't you kill him? The guy said, well, it doesn't matter how much money I would get, I'd be in so much trouble. Because we've all heard we we'll deal with kindly. Joab, little less of that, you know. Um, as he says in verse 14, Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. <laughs> That's his... Uh, that's his comment. You guys are losing the initiative here. You're losing um, what we bad boys do. He took three darts in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. That doesn't quite kill him. The rest of the men finally hack him up and kill him. Then they throw him in a pit and heap up stones on him. Okay? Now, at this point in the battle, what happens in ancient times, like we have with Philippides, I believe his name was. Was it Philippides? Remember him? You said to yourself, well, who is Philippides? Well, Philippides was um, a runner for the uh, Athenians at the Battle of Marathon. And after the winning against the Persians at the Battle of Marathon, they sent the runner back to Athens, 26.6 miles, which is where we get the word marathon for that length of a run. And he ran... Uh, all the way back to Athens, told them that they had won the battle and died. It's understandable. He had already run 150 miles to Sparta and back a few days before, fought a battle, and then ran to Athens. And it's understandable he died. But these things, information had to get places. Uh, the son of Abiathar, um, uh, Ahmaz, asked to be the runner. But Joab goes, eh, you're the good news runner, and the king's son is dead. What say you not run? And so this black guy, Cushite, we don't have his name, because those Kenyans are always good in the marathon, he says, well, send the Cushite. The Cushite takes off running. He's going to tell the king what's up. And Ahimaaz says, uh, can I still run? And Joab says, you're not going to get paid. 
I said, I'd still like to run. Well, this guy is a better runner than the Cushite. And he catches the Cushite, passes the Cushite, and he gets to King David first and tells him they won the battle. King says, what about my son? Ahmad says, I didn't hear. He had just heard. Job had just told him. You know, he just knew. They, they, that's why he couldn't run, is that the king's son was dead. But he, he cries off. Then the Cushite runs up. Everybody says, hey, there's another runner coming. Cushite doesn't care. He doesn't, you know, he says, hey, we won, and your kid's dead. <laughs> and it's, the king was deeply moved. And that brings out the phrase, oh, my son Absalom, my son, oh, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I feel a little bit icky just listening to it. You know, it's just, it's just unbecoming. And Joab hears, you know, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. I mean, the king has a responsibility as king that David as an individual, his heart was going a certain way and his heart was, had betrayed him with Absalom. His heart had betrayed him with Amnon. He had failed his family on all sorts of fronts. He was perhaps, you know, we go with Bathsheba, not only a lusty dude, but he was a, a passionate fella. And his passions are, are not admirable. They really aren't. Um, and it's ruining. I mean, you've had this, you've been driven from your own city. Your son was trying to kill you. Then you win the battle that had to happen. Your son was killed. What do you want? You know, and he says, would that I had died instead of you. What is all these people dying for you up about? Joab comes to him, and this is where I like Joab. In verse 5, came to the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life, and the lives of your sons and your daughters, and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. That's the, that's the, now Joab for being, he's a crystal clear thinker. He's not a good man, but he's clear. He, he's trying to serve the king and sometimes the inordinately practical guy, Joab, has to speak truth to the inordinately passionate guy. You hate those, you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I perceive that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. There's a, finally he has sort of the permission to speak freely, sir. And, and he, he lets David have it. David, unlike Saul, like we learned earlier, David makes bad mistakes. And when he is slapped, he, he reels and he comes up 
corrected, truly corrected. And David does go out and make the people feel, okay, this is a victory, somewhat. He's going to come back to Jerusalem. Now, in the process, this is all very politic, and you got to, if you read through the passage, I've cut out some portions, I've just labeled by the verses, the portions I pulled out. Uh, if you read through it, you'll realize that when David became king, all the way back at Hebron, he was king over Judah in Hebron for seven years. Finally, Israel says, okay, we'll have you as king. Now, because the tribes of Israel and the larger tribe, large tribe of Judah had their kind of distinct categories. Those words still have meaning. Israel has been fighting with Absalom on Absalom's side. And with Absalom dead, they realize um, there is a... Uh, Okay, we'll welcome the king back. David then sends a messenger to Judah and says, Hey, you, we're related. You might want to welcome me back first. You know? And he makes, he strikes a bunch of deals. One of the deals he strikes is he takes the commander that Absalom set into place, Amasa, and replaces Joab with Amasa. I don't know, because he got chewed out by Joab, I don't know. Joab had just won this big battle, but he's been, he's had it up to here with the sons of Zariah, you know, uh, because, again, they are, they are rather tough and rather extreme. Um, and there is this, uh, uh, David is trying to king out. He's still outside the city. He's trying to make it back across the Jordan. He's got to get back to Jerusalem. And who is welcoming him? Who is the welcoming party? Who gets to cheer him back? And how is he going to arrange things? So he, he lets Judah know that they should probably get in first and welcome me back. So they do, and Israel does. But they get into an argument in between that moment and, and uh, how this plays out. Shimei, the guy who cursed David and threw rocks at him, uh, he comes back with a really... Really apologetic. Wasn't didn't go the way Shimei had hoped, and he apologizes. And um, Abishai had been willing to take off his head earlier, and is arguing for his death now. And David calls him Satan in this. I bolded the word adversary. I looked it up. It is the word Satan. Um, I don't think I'm not trying to bring in the the nature of Satan into this, but he says you are. Uh, you, that you should be this day as an adversary to me, as a Satan to me. Um, it's where we get the idea of Satan from his adversarial quality. It's why Satan is called Satan, because of that. Not because every time adversary is, that means the demon, a big demon was there. Um, but I, it was a curiosity to me that, that Satan is mentioned so rarely in the Old Testament, three times, four times, something like that. Um, that this would be a, a mention there, but translated adversary. Um, and promises not to kill Shibia, which we'll come back to later at the end of David's life. Um, but Shimei uh, gets out from under it initially. The, the circumstance of the tension between Judah and Israel is ongoing. All the men of Israel, verse 41, 
Oh, excuse me. I, I skipped over Mephibosheth's story. Mephibosheth come to the king. He hasn't bathed, washed anything since the king was driven out of the city. He's been, he's been mourning the king's departure, but he was lame, and Ziba had left without him. And, and so he makes his case to David, and I think David believes him. Because Mephibosheth says, okay, I'll divide the property between the two of you. He said, Mephibosheth says, love to keep it all. I'm just glad the king's alive, you know. So Mephibosheth comes across as, as truly grateful to David. He just had been ratted out by Ziba. And uh, some of the people that David had received help from, um, uh, Barzilli on the other, uh, over at Mahanaim, David wants to reward. This guy refuses the reward. But I, those sorts of stories I, I just trimmed out because they were sort of uh, short vignettes of things. The big theme here is that Israel and Judah are in a point of tension and uh, it hasn't settled out yet. One side lost the battle and is welcoming the king back again and they start arguing with the men of Judah. Verse 41, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel because the king is near kin to us. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? They had been first. They had said, okay. And David had you know, called out to Judah and said, why don't you... You're kin to me, why don't you be the first, you know, uh, essentially. But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So there's this um, increasing tension. And before David even gets back to Jerusalem, while they're still crossing over from the Jordan, um, there's a revolt. Sheba, uh, a Benjaminite, uh, revolts against David, and all Israel goes to Sheba. David's not back on the throne yet, and there's another rebellion. The, the same army that had been against him with Absalom had barely, they'd lost Absalom, and so now they had no case to make, but this guy comes up and says, okay, to me, all Israel. And, um, um, and the king has to do something about it. Um, the king appoints Amasa, the guy who had been the commander for Absalom, to deal with this. Verse 5, so Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time which had been appointed him. He failed David. We don't know why he failed David. Maybe he wasn't easy to switch sides quite so readily. Um, maybe he just wasn't that talented. Maybe he wasn't that good at what he was doing. Um, David has to fall back on Abishai and Joab. First thing they do is they go out and find Amasa, grab him by the beard and run him through. Kill him, disembowel him on their, in their pursuit of Sheba. And they just leave a guy standing beside the bottle, body of uh, Amasa on the side of the road. Everybody walks up and guts her out on the ground. I think it actually says that. Um, I don't have that portion in here. Well. They basically said, you know, look at this, uh, with Joab, you know, or not. If you're with Joab and David, follow Joab. Finally, they got so people were slowing down so much in the 
to look at the body, the guy finally drags the body off the road and covers it with a blanket so nobody has to look at it. And the army goes, you know, after uh, Sheba. They they capture or they Sheba makes it up to a city in north north of Galilee, uh, Abel, and uh, and Joab pursues him up there. It's quite a ways <coughs> for um, for armies to march, uh, and uh, they lay siege to the city to get this guy. Finally, this wise woman comes to the tower and wants to talk to Joab. It says, you know, you really shouldn't. Yeah, we got a little ancient city here. We're we're good people. What's your problem? You're not gonna. So it says, we we don't have much of a problem. You guys, we don't want to just destroy your city, but uh, we're after this one guy. And the wise woman says, okay, we'll take care of it. She goes back into the city, convinces everybody. They cut Sheba's head off, throw it out beside the wall for Joab. Joab goes home. <laughs> He's got his uh, his job here is done. Um. And that sort of rounds up the the uh, circumstance of the you know the rebellions. It needs two rebellions, one on the heels of the other, and uh, and a real sort of insight into David's um, shortcoming. And I think if you um, if we look at if we look at David's shortcoming, it's the inordinate good. Grace, love, inordinately placed. As Joab said, yeah, hate those who love you and love those who hate you. That's inordinate. And sometimes people think if it's a good emotion, it must be a good action. Not if it's inordinate. Not if it's not correctly placed. Um, when a mother loves her children and the child disobeys, and she doesn't reprimand or discipline the child. She does done wrong. I don't care how much she loves the child. You can't fall back on it's love. It's good. So, uh, and we look as we look at Absalom and Ahithophel in a smaller writ case. We see the uh, you might say the, the the path we I think all of us take of. Uh, most of us in a small, small way, because we don't have the greatness that these people had, um, of expanding our wills into other people's lives and what kind of malevolence can also occur as that goes on as we try to, you might say, mold other people's to be our, our retainers, our, our followers, our disciples. Um, and uh, a while back, in uh, a few decades ago, there was a real... Um, stress in Christian circles about discipleship. And everybody was teaching discipleship and you had to find a discipler. It's kind of like they use the word mentor nowadays, which I abhor as well. But people were looking for disciplers and certain groups were pushing the idea. The navigators did it in a major, major way. And that gave an opportunity for all the little Absaloms out there to, all full of themselves, start to become domineering people over others. Um, we had one guy in a Bible study in California who was with NAVS in the Philippines before he got stationed where we were, and he wrote his old discipleship group leader and said, hey, I founded a Bible study, a great bunch of fellowship. Thank you for all your help. The guy wrote back, no, you're my disciple. I did not tell you you could get involved in a Bible study. You know, just you know, really weirded out. People 
we, we, we sometimes create circumstances that just like, you might say, naughty pictures or a bottle of vodka in front of an alcoholic, you put opportunity for your will uh, in front of some people and they can't resist. They, they will fall on, uh, on in, into that sin. So that's where Absalom and Ahithophel are. And, uh, um, and David, you'd like to think that, okay, the rebellions are done. It's all going to get better now. Uh, next week, which is our last week, we get to kill David off. But he does have some more problems. You'd like to think not as bad. I guess not as bad. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, thank you very much for your word. And we'd ask that we would avoid the pitfalls these famous people went through. We know that the uh, temptations uh, that we have are not com are common to man. And we see our own selves in some of these characters. We'd ask that we would be spared David's sensitivities and passions. And that we would be spared the murderous practicality of Joab, but we'd be able to pull the good things out of each each of these men. In your son's name we pray. Amen.